Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. The totals are in, and we managed over 400 submissions for the month that we were open. If only 15% of those submitted stories are a good fit for us and the format, that's a year of stories for us. Wow. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted a story. We do try to keep our turnaround time on when a story is submitted and when the author hears back to be short, but this is the first time that we've received 14 stories a day for a month. So if you sent one our way, please be patient. I'd like to give special thanks to Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini for their help with the submission progress. When the deluge opened up, Scott wisely delegated some of the reading to these two, who have been regular narrators for Tales to Terrify for quite some time. In fact, you'll be hearing a read from Drew shortly. Again, thank you, Drew, and thank you, Seth. And also, I had made a commitment to keep the amount of time between story acceptance and when the story airs under six months. Well, that too might be tricky, since we have likely received more than six months' worth of episodes. However, even if it's, let's say, nine months, it's still better than what we've been doing currently. While Philip Oldham was with us, and certainly the work that Scott Silk has been doing, has put together the stories and episodes that had appropriate run times and a bit of cohesion. Typically, it means that the oldest stuff goes out first, but not always. For example, our first story for the evening has been in our accepted list for four and a half years. But we wait no more. Let's hear from Mike Chen. Mike lives in Birmingham, UK, with his wife Caroline and their tribe of guinea pigs. 
In 2012, he took early retirement so he could spend more time writing. Over the years, he has published over 60 short stories, as well as editing three volumes of The Alchemy Press, Book of Pulp Heroes, and Swords Against the Millennium, also for The Alchemy Press. His own contribution to the pulp adventure genre, The Paladin Mandates, garnered two nominations for the British Fantasy Award in 1999. A second Damien Paladin book, Walkers in Shadow, is to be published by Pro Se Productions, as is a Western, Revenge is a Cold Pistol. In 2015, his Sherlock Holmes steampunk mashup, Vallis Timoris from Fringeworks, sent the famous detective to the moon. Every once in a while, he blogs at saladoth.blogspot.co.uk. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Mike Chin's Welcome to the Hotel Marianas. If you needed to send your loved ones a message, that was your last chance, ladies and gentlemen. We just passed beyond communications range. The voice on the intercom came over perfectly deadpan. From my seat at the front of the passenger cabin, I looked back at four faces showing the usual display of sudden pallor, twitchy eyes, and forced smiles. Pat said the same thing every dive, and she always got the same reaction. In a moment, I'd see the passengers start to laugh quietly and unconvincingly, and tell each other what a joker the captain was. I guess I shouldn't have been too harsh. Back in Waikiki, on warm, dry land, the idea of a few days in a hotel at the deepest part of the ocean was exciting, an adventure. Even during the short voyage north on our submersible's luxurious carrier, the SEI Cruise, it was still a fantasy. Now, so far down that the cabin's four fist-sized portholes were black, featureless circles, it was beginning to feel just a little too real. The weight of all that water above them, just a mite too heavy. One of the passengers, a cute blonde named Maureen Jones, raised her hand. But I thought the SEI Wave had the latest, most powerful submarine communication equipment there was. That's true, ma'am, I replied with my most reassuring smile. But once we drop below the level of the Pacific Basin, even SEI Wave has problems maintaining contact. I eased myself up out of my seat, working out the kinks with a few careful stretches. Anyway, folks, I'll shortly be turning down the cabin lights. If anyone needs their drink freshened, now's the time. As I stepped over to the service trolley, I checked to see if anyone was interested. The cute blonde was waving an empty glass. The two old guys on our trip were looking my way expectantly. I snapped the wheel brakes off and rolled the trolley down the broad aisle. What can I get you? I asked the nearest of the old guys a Mr. Del Harriman, here with his wife, Barbara. His face was as round and red as a giant tomato and covered with a faint sheen. Not a healthy man. Another beer. 
I served him a can of SEI's brand of suds and a bag of the small, fish-shaped cookies we had to serve on all our trips. I was about to move on when he asked, Why do you need to dim the lights? I bent forward and spoke quietly. Well, sir, with the cabin lights on, we're lit up like a Christmas tree, flashing our presents for kilometers. Even now, we still don't know exactly what's down here. Mr. Harriman's tomato face paled by several shades. As I straightened, I looked across the aisle to the blonde. She was grinning as widely as I was. He's yanking your chain, Mr. Harriman, she said lightly. They dim the lights for our benefit, so we can see what's outside rather than our own reflections. The fish down here produce their own light. Bioluminescence, it's called. But it would be swamped by the sub's strip lights. Her eyes locked playfully with mine. Isn't that right, Mr. Crane? Cute and smart. Spoil sport, I said. In fact, we always leave the submersible's external beams on because fish are curious and can't resist the lure of the lights, especially ones that live in almost total darkness. If any anglerfish, vampire squid, or any other of the freakish inhabitants of the abyss happened by, we wanted our passengers to see them. All part of the service. I reached into the trolley without being prompted. Frozen margarita, wasn't it? She nodded, still smiling at me. As I mixed the drink, she asked, Have you ever seen a live Architeuthis, Mr. Crane? A giant squid? No, but I live in hope. It's a testament to the size of the ocean that one of its largest inhabitants is also one of the most elusive. I put the drink down in front of her along with a bag of those childish cookies. There you go, ma'am. It's Maureen. While you're a passenger, it's just ma'am. I had a sudden warm glow somewhere around my stomach. She raised her glass. Here's to stepping off the sub, then. I nudged the trolley towards the second guy, Mr. Don Irwin. He was a big man, had the air of ex-military about him. Even his thick white eyebrows were standing at attention. He ordered scotch on the rocks, but didn't want any fish cookies. I apologized and gave him a bag anyway. Mrs. Harriman was good, so I returned to my station and locked the trolley. Before I sat, I had a final announcement. Lunch will be served in an hour, and now it's lights out. I tapped a key on a wall-mounted pad and the cabin lights dimmed to a faint blue glow. The tiny spots looked like beads strung out across a huge invisible web enveloping the cabin. The portholes were still pits of black in the dimness. I shivered. The darkness always makes me feel cold. Pat called over the intercom to say we'd reached the bottom about an hour after I'd stacked away the lunch trays. The gently recycled air held the faintest aromatic hint of lobster thermidor. The passengers were half-dozing with the best food and drink their $200,000 could buy. It was a shame to wake them. Ladies and gentlemen, I called. 
There was a general rustling and low muttering as they surfaced from whatever semi-dreams they'd been enjoying. Once I was confident they were awake enough to understand me, I announced that we'd arrived at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Are we at the hotel? asked Mr. Harriman. He was looking feverish, or maybe he was still half asleep. I'd be glad to drop him off at the hotel. I was liking the look of him less and less. Not quite. There's still a short distance to go. But this last part of the voyage is, for my money at least, the best yet. I tapped a key and the watertight door behind me unsealed and rolled back soundlessly. If you'll follow me. It was a short walk down towards another cabin sighted right where the bows became the keel. The sloped floor was carpeted to silence, the lighting subtly growing dimmer the lower we went. By the time the passengers closest to me stepped into SEI Wave's observation chamber, it was as black as the lightless ocean outside. I started to feel the familiar psychosomatic chill. I stepped to one side and flicked a switch. A ring of external spotlights flared to life, revealing the floor of the Mariana Trench just a few meters below us. The backwash filled the observation room with a cold, gray light, just enough for us to make out each other. As one, they gasped at the sight. I didn't blame them. Even though I'd seen it dozens of times, it still caught the back of my throat. The forward wall of the observation chamber was a clear, hemispherical bubble, two meters in diameter, its thick polymer shell able to withstand pressures greater than the rest of the sub. As the spots played on the stark rocks, peculiar outcroppings and twisted pinnacles drifted past below us. It was the closest to being enclosed by water without getting wet or crushed. It's everything I'd heard, said Maureen. She reached out gingerly, touching the hemisphere's inner surface with a fingernail. It won't crack, I said, laughing at her caution, unless those nails are edged with cutting diamonds. You sure now? asked Harriman. Well, pretty sure. But what's a deep-sea voyage without a few thrills? I glanced at the readouts to my left. We're currently at a depth of meters. The passengers could have read that for themselves, but I knew from experience they rarely did. The pressure on the hull is 108.6 MPA, or over a thousand times the pressure at sea level. Obviously, there isn't much living at these depths. Harriman coughed nervously. If Mount Everest got dropped down here there'd be over 2,000 meters of water still above the peak. I glanced quickly out of the clear nose. Right on schedule, the white carcass appeared in the sub's spotlights. Ladies and gents, I present the whale's graveyard, a sperm whale, or what's left of it, that died and drifted down here around two years ago. I didn't add the carcass had been deliberately sunk and dropped off at this specific point. Back then, it was still recognizable as a whale. Now, well, you can see, all that's left are bones. They huddled into the observation nose as the SEI wave drew closer. 
The massive, curiously flat bones lay across the uneven floor, still vaguely suggestive of the whale's original shape. There were no strong currents or large scavengers to disturb the giant's resting place. Is there something wriggling? Harriman's wife asked. I could see the movement myself, a pale, moving carpet that coated each bone. The remains almost appeared alive. Small crabs, I said. I told you nothing much lives down here. That's more to do with the scarcity of food than the pressure. When something like this drops in, it keeps whole communities alive for years. Those old bones might look picked clean to you, but there's enough left to keep those crabs happy. Are those eels? Maureen asked. She pointed at a couple of serpentine shapes that writhed slowly over the mass of crustaceans. Hagfish, primitive fish that haven't changed in millions of years. They predate the dinosaurs. Hell, that's a big one. It was Don Irwin who'd spoken. I saw his silhouetted arm right up against the bubble. I glanced in the direction it was pointing, just in time to see a long, thick shape undulate out of the sub's lights and into the blackness beyond. Sure is, I agreed. But that quick glance was still enough to tell me that was no hagfish. It looked like a limb of some kind. I felt a faint tremor of excitement. Maybe I was finally about to see my first Architeuthis. The submersible cruised slowly along the length of the whale's carcass. There was nothing else to pick over the remains other than the crabs and occasional hagfish. No strange limbs or giant squid. Once the last of the bones drifted out of sight, I checked the readouts again. We should be seeing the lights of Hotel Marianas any minute now. Keep your eyes peeled. A moment later, something glittered ahead. I was just about to point it out when I realized it wasn't a light source, but something reflecting back the SEI wave's spots. It drifted past the observation bubble, about as thick as a mooring cable, glistening like oil in the lights, both ends invisible in the void beyond the focused beams. Is that seaweed? a voice queried. I nodded automatically. I didn't have a clue. I guess, I replied, trying to sound nonchalant. A couple more appeared. The oily glistening made them appear to be gently swaying in a current I knew wasn't there. One scraped against the sub's hull. It sounded like two divers' suits rubbing wetly together. Well, folks, I said, looks like you're in luck. We're all the first to see whatever it is we're seeing. You're kidding, right? I sensed them all turning to look at me. No, trust me, this isn't some new SEI gimmick for tourists. At least, I was pretty sure it wasn't. This is a genuine, never-before-recorded phenomenon. I gave them my best smile, though I doubt they could see it. Hope someone's taking notes. There was a shuffling as they all returned their attention to the outside again. 
The cables, filaments, whatever, were increasing in number, drifting towards us like the screensaver on some ancient computer screen. The rubbery sound of them brushing the hull was growing continuous. I don't know if anyone else could feel it, but through my feet, I detected the faintest motion as the SEI wave gently pitched and yawed. I stared over the heads of the passengers at the thickening network of glistening strands. It reminded me of something, but I couldn't think what. The intercom crackled. Captain here. I guess Mr. Crane's been telling you the giant kelp ahead is unknown to science, which means we're the discoverers. However, the boat can't make any headway, so I'm going to back us up a ways and see if we can't go over. Meantime, you can make up your minds which of you gets the honor of having the weed named after them. The implant in my ear buzzed. Can you come up here a moment? Pat sounded edgy. I apologized and left them all staring out at the bizarre web of filaments. They were still buzzing with excitement. As I made my way back up the connecting corridor, I felt SEI wave slip into full reverse. The tiny control room was immediately above and aft of the passenger cabin, reached by a set of rungs set in the wall and a circular hatch. It was little more than a raised blister on the sub's dorsal surface, big enough for Pat Monroe to sit in comfort, surrounded by her monitors and sensor readouts, but pretty cozy with two of us in there. I squeezed up through the hatch and fitted in best I could. Kelp? was the first thing I asked. All I could think of, they buy it? I was watching one monitor. It showed the filaments in tiny detail, thinning out as we backed off. Most swallow just about any guff I spin them. However, there's a woman, Maureen Jones, who's pretty smart. I doubt she's been taken in. Already he's using their first names. Pat's right hand rattled across a keyboard. Looks like we're out. I'll take her up 50, see how that stands. SEI wave slowed and stopped and began moving forward. The engines were designed to be silent. Nothing should disturb the passengers' calm. But Pat and I had spent enough time on the boat to feel every motion through our feet. So, what did you want to see me about? Pat stared at one of the forward monitors. Her eyes were locked so rigidly on the screen, presently showing nothing. I got the feeling it wasn't just the strange filaments she was looking for. I've been trying to raise the hotel since we dropped below the level of the Pacific Basin. By which I guess you mean you haven't managed it? Total silence. Not even a carrier beam. I couldn't think what to say to that. The Marianas Hotel communicated with the upstairs world via relay beacons on the basin floor and buoys to the surface. It would take major seismic activity to take out all of the beacons. And there'd been nothing. Even so, this close, we should have been able to pick up the hotel using old-fashioned radio. Think it's serious? I asked eventually. I'm not making any wild guesses. Could be nothing. A software glitch. Anyway, 
She punched another key. I've prepped an emergency marker buoy. If we reach the hotel and, well, let's say the situation warrants it, I'm launching the buoy and returning to the surface. By the time we breach, crews will have reached the marker. And so will most of SEI's disaster teams. I looked at her strained face, locked rigid on the one screen. There was no sign of the filaments. Guess I'd better get down to my passengers, I said. It was little more than a mumble. I could see I was talking to myself. Pat may have nodded, or it could have been the flickering lights. I squeezed myself back through the hatch, sealing it tight behind me, and climbed back down to the passenger cabin. I wanted to run forward, to get to the observation room before we reached the hotel, but I still hung back. I didn't want to know what I might find out down there, or what I was going to tell the passengers. They were all clustered in the nose, staring down quietly. I stepped up, wondering what was so fascinating. It was the filaments, Pat's kelp, stretched out below us. From above, the resemblance to a vast, untidy web was even greater. I wondered if the cable-sized threads stretched right across the trench, eventually choking it off along its deepest, narrowest point. The boat's spotlights cast shadows from the higher filaments on the ones below our movement making those shadows ooze and wriggle down into the depths. I found myself shivering, and not at some darkness-induced chill. It was all too easy for my imagination to solidify those shadows into something flowing between the threads, always just beyond the reach of our lights. That's not kelp. It was Maureen. She was standing right next to me, and I hadn't noticed. She was speaking softly for my ears only. Seaweed needs sunlight. I know. If anything, I was quieter than she was. So what is it? Take a guess. You've got as much chance as the rest of us. We continued to pass the stuff for a couple more minutes. The chaotic look of the tangle disguised the fact that each thread was perfectly straight, no matter what angle it was stretched across the bottom of the trench. Dead straight and, as far as I could tell, all identical in thickness. There was something too deliberate about the whole thing, like it was a construction of some sort. Abruptly, the tangle stopped not petering out like it did at the other end. It was so sudden I wondered if something had crashed down, shearing off the network. SEI wave began to descend again, into a void that seemed blacker than ever. Now our spotlights had nothing to reflect off. Where was the hotel? Sorry? It was Maureen again. I thought you said something she said. I glanced towards her dim shape, wondering if I'd spoken out loud. Just uh, saying the hotel will be along in a moment. Even though I couldn't see her clearly, I knew Maureen was giving me a frank stare. She didn't believe me, any more than I did. Shouldn't the hotel be there? 
someone called from the gloom. The SEI wave was close to the floor again, its spotlights picking out the rocks and ooze. That layer of sediment was normally pretty smooth, nothing much to disturb it. But here it looked... gouged, almost. Like some undersea dredger had been passed, scooping wildly. But I couldn't see any lights. Either our navigation was way off, or... A moment later I saw it, or what remained, anyway. Hotel Marianas, the pride of SEI's leisure arm, the hotel at the bottom of the sea, was a wreck. Parts of it loomed out of the dark as we neared, cold and lightless. It had been fashioned to look like an enormous starfish, reception in the center, rooms, conference facilities, restaurants, spas, and gyms and the radiating arms. Now it looked as lifeless as the starfish souvenirs available at any seafront gift shop. A husk. A skeleton. There were breaches in the pressure hull. Black, yawning, gaping tears. Multiple catastrophic failures in the hull. So many it had overwhelmed the safety network of pressure seals and waterproof doors. It was hard to imagine how it might have happened but it was the only explanation. The staff would never have had time to make a single distress call. Jesus, someone whispered. Oh, my Christ. The silence that followed was worse than any amount of hysteria. The snap from the intercom seemed so loud in comparison, I'm pretty sure we all jumped. I'm launching the buoy, Pat said, calm and professional. Get everyone back in their seats and strapped in. I'm going up faster than the designers might like. I punched the response button. Roger that. As I faced the four dim shapes, I heard the distant thump of a hatch opening. The marker buoy bursting from its bay. Pat wasn't wasting any time. You heard the lady. Everyone back to the cabin. The ride up could be rough. That was an understatement. I'd done all the regulation emergency deep water escape training, and it can be unnerving. When a sub surfaces from nearly 11,000 meters like a cork, the groans and snapping all around you as the pressure on the hull drops can make even the most hardened submariner break sweat. I went to thumb the door release, but never reached it. The SEI wave lurched sickeningly rolling to port so suddenly we were all flung against the room's curved side. Someone swore. Someone else shrieked. All I could manage was a mute stream of invective that would have won a prize for imagination. I didn't have the breath to do it out loud. A moment later, the sub rolled to starboard, tossing us all to the thick carpet. I was the first to my feet. I threw myself at the control panel just in case the SEI wave tried another roller coaster loop and dialed the lights back up. In the full fluorescent glare, everyone looked sick. Sick and scared. Harriman's florid face was congested and greasy. His wife was trying to help him to his feet, but I thought he'd be better on the floor. Nowhere to fall if he had the heart attack I was more than half expecting. Maureen was trying to appear calm, but her eyes were too wide. 
flickering wildly around the suddenly too bright room. Irwin was propped against the wall, his breathing harsh and ragged. I stabbed the intercom. Pat, what the hell was that? All I got back was static. Pat! The sub took another lurch. For a moment, I thought it was actually going to stand on the bow. Everyone tried to hang on, but the observation cabin didn't have too much to hold on to. Then, the boat was level again. I kept stabbing the intercom button as though it would make a difference, yelling Pat's name. She never answered. There was another distant thump, followed by a muted clang. For a moment, I thought Pat was launching a second marker buoy, but then I heard an oddly metallic rumbling, and the lurch in my gut told me SEI Wave was sinking. The hull was breached. The Pacific Ocean was forcing its way in at a pressure a thousand times greater than atmospheric. Then the lights all went out. There were a couple of screams. I felt like joining in. The water had shorted out the system, which meant it had gotten into the control room, where Pat... The emergency lighting kicked in automatically a couple of endless seconds later. Thin and red, it turned the observation room into a miniature hell. What's happening? What's happening? Harriman raised his head from where he was lying. He was hugging his wife as though it was she who needed the comfort. We've been breached, I said, amazed at how calm my voice was. We're sinking? Harriman's wife asked shrilly. There are waterproof doors throughout the boat, I said, carefully and calmly. Any breach would be easily contained. Didn't the builders of the Titanic say something similar? Irwin muttered. Not helping, Maureen spat at him. I glanced towards the observation bubble, even though the spotlights were dead, and I shouldn't be able to see a thing. But I could. The sub had turned 180 degrees. We were facing the threads again, and they were glowing. That oily, rainbow look hadn't just been from our reflected lights. They gave off a sickly St. Elmo's fire that revealed the entire vast network, stretching across meters, ramrod straight, until anchoring against the trench's gently sloping sides, piling up into the dark ocean. I knew what it reminded me of. A funnel-web spider's lair. But this wasn't a trap, not glowing like that. It was more of a lure. Something called that deadlight glowing nest a home. SEI wave lurched again, and the glowing threads seemed to bob past the observation bubble. I realized I could hear the engines whining, and that was wrong. The sub dipped again. I went right up to the bubble, pressed myself against it as I tried to look up. I don't know what I hoped to see with the hemisphere angled towards the ocean floor, not up into cold, dark water. The sickly light off the network of threads was too weak to illuminate anything, 
the surface too far above for human eyes to see even the faintest glow. Something drove past the bow, raising a cloud of ooze that obscured the thread's glimmer. It was hard to be sure. It happened too fast, and there was so little light. But I thought it was a limb of some kind. A huge, articulated limb from a Godzilla-sized crab. The sub was thrown, like a toy in a bathtub. Everyone was tossed about the room like landed fish, and I lost interest in whatever I thought I'd seen. The engines were screaming now, a ragged fingernails-down-a-board screech, and the emergency light flickered. What's happening? What's happening? That was Harriman's wife. She didn't sound scared, just close to tears. As I tried getting to my feet, I wished to God I could tell her. I got as far as kneeling and I could see her crouched next to her husband. He looked far too still. I crawled to his side, grabbing the carpet as SEI Wave did another pirouette. I couldn't find a pulse, and in the hell-colored emergency light I didn't know what shade his face was, but I guessed that final heart attack had finally hit. I glanced up. From the miserable set of her face, I knew I didn't have to say anything. There was no time for commiserations. I had to get up, somehow get the sub and its passengers back to the surface. I made my way towards the port side, on all fours, thrown every few seconds as the sub shook and dove, amazed it hadn't cracked open yet, and trying to blot out the intensifying screams of the engines. Around me, Mrs. Harriman, Irwin, and Maureen flopped like ragdolls, each trying to get to their feet. The engines drowned out any sounds they may have been making. I'd reached the edge of the floor, where the wall curved to meet it, and was wondering how I was going to stand upright, when SEI Wave's drunken lurching stopped. The engines died, and total, profound silence fell. I pulled myself upright, looking around at the last three passengers. All were still on the floor, dazed, hurting probably, bruised certainly. Maureen and Irwin stared back at me with lifeless eyes. Mrs. Harriman hunched over her husband's body, moaning faintly. The corpse was the only one of us not to have moved. I turned away. There was no time to worry about personal traumas. I flipped open a panel next to the lighting and intercom controls, exposing all the emergency override switches. Emergency breach was a huge red button, safeguarded by two large overlapping safeties that had to be manually snapped aside. I'd pushed the first away when the emergency light failed. Not just the emergency lights. Every telltale was dead. There wasn't a single LED or bulb flickering in the observation room. I guessed the same was true all over the sub. Feeling with my fingertips, I clicked back the second safety and mashed down on the emergency breach button anyway. Nothing happened. The only light in the cabin was coming from outside. The weird, ghostly sheen off the threads. 
In the complete blackness, the glow was hypnotic. Maureen, Irwin, and I found ourselves standing in the nose, staring at the rigid network. Mrs. Harriman stayed back in the shadows with her late husband. It sounded like she was whispering to him. What now? Irwin asked, his voice edgy and ragged. I guess we find out what happened to the hotel, I said. I felt Maureen crushing herself against me. Too bad the circumstances weren't better. We all saw the threads begin to move at the same time. I felt Maureen tense and heard Irwin's shaky hiss. The glowing strands were drifting up, like a vast curtain rising onto an unlit stage, and against it stuttered a vast, fractured silhouette. Something was coming out. Something big. So big it was hard to imagine. We didn't need to see it. Never did tell me your name, Maureen whispered. Dave, I said, my voice shaking. I told myself it was the cold. The glowing web of threads rose up forever. That was Mike Chin's Welcome to the Hotel Marianas, as read by Robert Gagno. Robert A. K. Gagno is a theater director, actor, and voiceover artist residing in Queens, New York. A podcast aficionado, he is the producer and host of both Apparitions, featuring new horror radio plays at apparitionspodcast.com and New York City's independent theater podcast, Go See a Show, at Go see a show, podcast.com. Find out more about his theater, podcast, and voiceover work at robertgagno.com. Thank you, Robert. Our second story of the night comes from Chris Caps. We heard a story from him fairly recently in episode 238. We heard his Don't Show Your Face to the Sky. After spending several years covering subjects of weird news in Fortiana, Caps moved on to covers fictions almost exclusively for a time in the year 2012, after finishing the novel Our War with Molly Nafak, which came out in March of 2014. Among Caps's early work were the post-apocalyptic Eben Chronicle books Beware the Well-Fed Man, Life and Limb, Rust Baby Wonderland, and the novel Pennies from Heaven, he also penned the pandimensional horror-slash-comedy series Cal Factory with Zachary Siebert, starting with the novella Uncle Jesse's War Box. Caps's interests include entropy, cryptography, kipple, water, heat, zombies, and oxygen, all in easily metabolized quantities. His disinterests include celebrity gossip. It is extremely unlikely that Chris Caps is a spontaneous arrangement of quantum particles that came into existence in their current configuration without cause. He lives in the tiny city of Carbondale in southern Illinois. And now Chris Caps is singing in the drain.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You hear about folks falling asleep in the bathtub. Anywhere in the bathroom, really. Elvis went that way. But when you hear it, something just doesn't sit right in the mind. I'd like to wax philosophical about how it's a place for cleansing and somehow the mind of dreams isn't made for clean things. I'd like to say something about that's why I became a plumber. But the truth of it is, I just fell out of high school. The end. Tie a ribbon on it, that's me. The truth of it is, shit pipes need working. That's a fun way of talking about it, too. I could tell it a hundred ways by saying that we can't trust the lawyers and the dentists to take care of honest work. I could impugn a whole world of people too good to do my job. The economics. They've got a supply, and I'm in demand. But that's kind of crude. And I don't like talking about decent folks like that. Love them. That's what I say anymore. But do you know where your pipes lead when they're drinking your bath water? I do. Most of the time. They lead down into the pipeline on your block. Or into your septic system. I knew a guy that asked where all the sewage was. Where's all the dirty water? He was sure it was a deep question, like it was all waiting somewhere hungry to get back on the land. He's dead now, died in the bathroom. He had a look about him, like a man coming to an end. That's how I found him that morning when he answered the door. Daryl Bell, with a Y. You Craig? he asked. Yes, sir, I said. Two words, not one. Yeah, so, I just wanted you to... Check the pipes. This is a new place. I just want to make sure nothing's out of the ordinary. Daryl looked nervous, like I had just dropped out of a patrol car on his front step. 
He had a bathrobe on. The house was brand new, a modular factory home built for the suburbs. And that probably suited him just fine, since that's where we were. All around us, the same house. Anything out of the ordinary? I said. This wasn't a good sign. In the suburbs, if you're looking at home pipes, you'd better find something wrong. And if you don't, you'd better be ready for a fight on payday. Daryl with a Y looked like the kind to dispute a consultation fee. I could see him calmly explaining to me as if I was a child that some plumbers do free consultations. Yeah, some do. The house was as new-looking as a sharp-edged pack of cigarettes. Books on the shelf on subjects of heuristics and medicine. I'm one of those that pays attention to that sort of thing. Books. The kitchen sink worked well enough. The lever lifted and the water vanished down into the dark, just like it was supposed to. The washer-dryer attachments in the linen room did the same. Uh, the bathroom, Daryl said as if I didn't know what was left. Please. Actually, he looked nervous even then. The bathroom was a thing of suburban decadence. A square tub, yeah, square, made of black marble and brass faucets. The faucets were guided electronically by a digital thermometer, and it worked just fine. Watching the water disappear finally, I turned to him in the doorway. Yeah, it's good, I said, retrieving a pad of paper from my back pocket and writing the time of day on it. I could have checked for gaps in the sealant, but I've done homes like this a hundred times, and at this stage in their life cycle, that's not a problem. Whatever had him nervous, I couldn't help. Where does all the water go when it goes? He asked. It sounded faint, like the answer might be a secret. Down the drain, I said. From there, it goes to the effluent pipe underground and gets carried down to the county. You're on a natural reservoir, so don't worry about it. I paused, looking at his fingernails, scratching the latex paint in the doorframe, trying to peel it off the drywall. Don't have to worry about re-drinking your water. Uh, the, these are... PVC pipes in, in this house, right? He asked. Yes, sir, I said. Uh, how well does sound travel through them? Uh, not, not like gutter sounds, I mean, like music. <laughs> I don't know. Ask the blue men. Sign here, please. I charged Daryl $30 for the inspection, which a licensed man would have asked more for. The next house on my list was two blocks away on the corner of Oak and Sunset. My pad said, hearing disabled, come on in. Hearing disabled. I don't know if that's polite to say or not. Disabled doesn't ring true, since I've known plenty of clients who talk with email just fine. I knocked, then tried the doorbell, wondering if there was some kind of gadget inside that buzzed him or let him know when someone was at the door. Maybe a light. I wondered if anyone had ever invented a doorbell for the hearing impaired. Hell, I might invent one. That'd bring in a bit of cash. More than a bit. 
Hello? I called out once I got inside. My hand reflexively touched the doorbell again, trying as best I could not to look like a burglar. Uh, plumber here for the pipes. As I hit the doorbell again, I noticed a bright green lamplight strobe twice at the corner of the room. Capital goddamn! I didn't bother getting my tools out of the trunk when I was going to see Daryl, since it seemed like he just wanted me to come over to look around. But I never count on the same sort of luck happening twice. An easy job meant five, maybe six hard jobs to come. With box in hand, I was ready to get them out of the way. I walked into the house, hitting the door light again as I entered. Like something I would have made, I said, and meant it. It's not my fault all the easy inventions have been done by now. The blinds were drawn against the sun, filling the room with a muted orange that was striped and gloomy. Blinds drawn sunlight on a sunny day. That's the most depressing color I know. And the room was quiet, too. Lonely quiet. Except for that lullaby. I call it a lullaby because that's what it was. Soft as cotton. A smooth, gentle voice. Like something a lawn cherub might sing if it wasn't made of stone. Things are looking up, it sang cooing. It's a great little world we live in. The kitchen sink worked just fine, as did the washer and dryer attachments. The man of this house was named Harold Wilcox. His books told me he was into sports and porn from the 90s, and that he suffered from depression. He had a record collection with a lot of Roy Orbison and Beach Boys. I guess he wasn't always deaf. Black and white pictures of him on the mantel showed him as a young man saluting in a uniform. The smoke detector chirped once, demanding a fresh battery. I lingered there in the living room, figuring he might be on the can. That singing might be his cell phone getting messages in his pocket. It's not like he would hear it. When I got close to the door, I leaned in. The song had started over. Those same two lines again. That same voice. I didn't really hear anything else. Could be a cell phone. I thought about it. The old man aged from the living room pictures, living alone, dead in the bathroom. There was a reason to believe it, but there was a creeping feeling on my back, like a huge daddy long legs. Before I could reason my way out of it, I opened the door to the bathroom. It stood in the empty room like a black stone obelisk, that tall marble walk-in bath, like something out of 2001 staring down at me. A tub like that could fill over a man's head if he was sitting inside. They were ideal for people with mobility issues who didn't want the peril of standing with one leg over an ordinary tub, especially a big stone one like this. The door on the outside was plastic, made to look like the marble surrounding it, sealed like a submarine bulkhead to keep the water in when it was shut. The toilet seat was down, had folded clothes and a pair of reading glasses on it. Up over the tub was the green strobe light, like the one I had seen in the living room. 
There was no chance of him not seeing it in here. Not if he was alive. I tried to tell myself that I was being paranoid. But something was wrong behind the walls of that tub. The sink worked just fine. Toilet flushed too. No problem. I tried both and then stood there waiting and listening for that music. But it was gone. Even if he couldn't hear, he might have been able to feel the pipes refilling the tank and then stopping. Might have said something. Anything. Nope. Just that silence, with the fingerprints of that voice still on it. I thought about calling the police. Maybe someone should check this out who wasn't me. But if there was no body, then what? I didn't want to call the police out to this poor man's house for no reason. That's how my hand found its way on the door to the tub. That bulkhead to the obelisk. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen to somebody in a bathtub, right? That's where the thoughts went next, and they came running back just as quickly. We're not going to think about that. We're going to get this door open. It didn't squeak when it opened, just sort of swung out in my hand. Patient as you please and I told my hand to keep it opening and promised not to piss down my legs if I saw what I was afraid of. Thoughts of an old man spun in my head, bloated and fixed in naked mortal terror. The door swung, and it swung, and it opened. No body. A good part of me hissed relief when I didn't see the swollen grave skin swimming in the dry tub. He wasn't dead. I wasn't going to see a dead body today. But there was something else there. A metal frame standing next to the tub's bench. It was a walker, just the kind that an old man like Charles Wilcox might need to get around. Yellow hairy tennis balls were stabbed into the end of each leg. Trying to make sense of it, my eyes roamed up the walls of the tub and on the ceiling, seeing nothing. Finally, they came to rest on the floor beneath the walker. That's where the drain was. In that whole house, there was no one, and no damn cell phone. The smoke detector chirped again, and then there was a hollow, curious silence. Oh, hello, Daryl said when I got back to his house. Uh, did you forget something? I stood there at his front door, unsure of myself, holding the toolbox with my bare hands and looking past him into the house. If I'd been more in the moment, I think I would have been very self-conscious about how off I tend to look when I'm not paying attention. People judge a man with tools when he's staring at nothing, saying nothing. And they should. Uh, was there something else? Daryl said. There was something in his voice that told me a lot. He was actually relieved to see me. You asked about sound coming up through the pipes, I said. Why? I might have heard something. Like an animal? A kind of animal, yeah. Without a word further shared, we found ourselves in the kitchen. Me sitting at the breakfast table with a cup of coffee between my hands. Daryl was sitting across the table with his eyes on me, waiting for me to say something. When I didn't, he walked over to the sink 
and turned on the hot water, and he let it run. What are you doing? I said. Wasting water? He said. Why? Just to do it. Steam was growing in the basin of the sink, climbing up the kitchen window and turning like ghosts. And he stood next to it, leaning back with his eyes on the floor and his arms crossed. He was hoping something would happen, waiting. It made me uncomfortable. I realized I had made a mistake coming back, but the coffee was expensive and I didn't want to waste it in front of him. So I sat, and he stood, and we said nothing. Things are looking up, the twee voice sang. Same voice, to be sure. Daryl looked at me. That your phone? I asked. Is what my phone? He said, eyes full of meaning and confusion all slurried up. I stood, walked to the sink, and looked down. The drain was the one singing. Steaming water spiraled around it, Coriolis or none, and dribbled into the dark. We watched it. Things are looking up. It's a great little world we live in. I'll get the snake, I said. It was a simple hand spinner, the kind used in sinks and bathtubs. Not for toilets. I can't stress that enough. If you've never had occasion to use one, the principle is simple. You turn a crank, wire comes out and spins around. It breaks up whatever clog it runs into. In the quiet dispassion of hindsight, I can't imagine what I thought the hand spinner, the snake, would do. But if that voice was less than 25 feet down the drain, we'd run into it. At that point... I don't think I realized how deep of shit we were in. Twenty-five feet, I said a bit later as the spinner snapped to the end of its coil. My right foot was braced on a chair in the kitchen, leaning back heavily and unwinding it. The stance was one more of fishing than plumbing. Daryl was standing there staring needlessly down the drain and sipping what was left of my coffee. That's it, I said again turning to look at him. And there's bad news. He didn't say anything. I didn't feel any curves in this pipe. After the drain trap and one other, I think it's broken. Twenty-five feet, I should have gone around several bends. I'm going to need to check beneath your house. The needles turned from the drain to me. His mouth was twisted, desperate as it was angry. He blinked and nodded leading me to the utility room. Daryl had quite a collection of shoes stacked up there, each pair still in its shoebox with paper wrapped around them, several of those still in retail bags. He dragged these stacks out of the closet and down the hallway a few feet. He pushed fur and wool coats to the side and pulled back the zebra-striped rug that was laying on the utility door to the crawl space. As I opened it, I looked down into the dark and felt something nudge my shoulder. It was a flashlight. You want me to help? he asked. Two flashlights descended and twitched nervously between the wooden and cinder block beams and the foundation, reflecting on the motes of grit 
that hung like upset fairy dust in every direction. The dust was thick, but not enough to be choking. It was actually refreshing, crawling under a house too new to have accumulated much in the way of cobwebs. I've never been down here, Daryl whispered. My flashlight was scanning the wall for a drainage pipe, where all the water in the house would eventually be routed on its way to the effluence pipe under the road. The ceiling was too low to do anything but duck walk, so I scooted from boot to boot southward until something crunched under heel. I looked down. It was scattered like broken glass, the piping. Not quite shattered, more like shredded. Long strips of eggshell white in crescents, like a giant's toenail clippings. I picked one of the sharp pieces up and held it toward Daryl. He didn't know what to make of it, of course. Even the expansion of winter ice in a pipe system won't bust it like that. The list of causes for something like this is just shy of nothing. It would have taken a man a long time to so thoroughly shred every bit of the outlet pipe. Don't ask what kind of tool he would use or why. And sure enough, it was shredded all the way to the drainage port. The whole jack lay like an open wound in the wall, bleeding tiny drips of distilled water that had evaporated and condensed up from the sewer. From that vantage point, I turned my flashlight, and I saw another pipe pointing straight down. The hell? I said slowly, letting it hang in the air between the words. His drainage wasn't going to the city. It was going down. I'd been to a couple houses in this subdivision already, and I knew for a fact that this wasn't in the design. We watched it, him shining his flashlight in my face to make sense of my confusion. What? What does that mean? He asked finally. Somebody broke your pipes and then put in new ones, leading straight down. By this point, I was doing the duck walk over to that ivory column. From the first junction point, it just made a straight line into the earth. As I reached it, I even took care to look at the layer of soil it was descending into. The ground around it was level, like it hadn't even been dug recently. Like it had just been pushed down from the ceiling. Where does it go? Daryl asked. I was less concerned with that at the moment instead looking at the outside of the pipe itself. I was looking for a serial number, a company, a gauge marker. Plumbing pipes these days are always covered in writing as a means to organize them at the factory and to help plumbers that install them. And these pipes didn't have any. Simple, mundane as it may seem, this was what sent those daddy long legs crawling up my back again. And then there was the bracket that was supposed to connect the pipe to the rest of the junction. As much of a pain in the ass as these brackets are, no one has been able to invent a pipe that connects without one. I knew that. An Australian once told me you could soften up the piping with a heat gun and then work it back and forth to fit it around a bigger piece. But even he said this was a temporary solution and needed lots of practice. And even that wasn't easy to do but nothing like this. 
The dull eggshell color of the house's normal piping didn't stop all at once. It faded with the writing around it, as if merged with the white piping leading straight down into the earth. I'm saying one pipe just became the other. We need a shovel, I said. We need to find out where this goes. No, we don't, he said. Son, I said. Daryl was older than me, I'm pretty sure, but it just fell out. Not only does this seem impossible from where I'm standing, there's no reason for it. We need to figure out where your water's going. An hour later and we were in the same spot, but two feet down, with a hole growing slowly with each jab of a shovel. The dirt beneath us moved easily, having only recently been bulldozed to lay the foundation of the house. What do you think will hit? Daryl asked. I didn't say anything, rude as it was. I didn't know. And I certainly didn't want to tell him I had no idea where we were heading. But as the shovels grabbed dirt and dropped it around us, I started thinking about the possibilities. It could be a sinkhole, or anything else. Daryl's shovel cracked against something hard. I think I've got something, he said. Together we worked with our hands. The digging up until now had been apprehensive, nearly casual. But it was close now. The thing that pinged under the shovel. There was something just under this layer of recently turned dirt that might yield an answer to this whole bizarre day. And as our hands bumped into each other to pull away that veil of dirt, at last we came to the termination of our efforts. Fingers scraped against it, brushing what was left of the dust as if to reveal writing, to give some hint that this was an act of man. But there was no writing. We kept dusting around, revealing the thing the pipe was plugged into. It's called caliche, rock under the dirt in the southwest. We had just run into it about five feet down. This was the stone that the house was built on, smooth as can be under the foundation like the stone bottom of a giant sandbox. Shovel stopped there, but the pipe had pricked it without trouble. It was just passed through it, threaded like a needle through a hole no bigger than its own circumference. That's another thing odd about it. A pipe doesn't just thread any stone, except maybe concrete. You need to drill or blast your way through it, or else chisel a hole big enough to push the pipe through. And no matter what you do, you're going to leave an edge around the pipe that will need to be filled with cement or else something like it. This was just stone that stopped and became pipe, same as how a flower stem perfectly fits the dirt, like the pipe had grown out of the ground. I didn't give Daryl a chance to say anything to make me more nervous. The flashlights would eventually run out of charge. We'd already been down there for a few hours. But while Daryl climbed out of the pit and sat with his back, making mud out of the soil we had just moved, I pulled out the hammer and a screwdriver. Kalichi can be chiseled, bit by bit. It takes a long time and a steady hand, but I figured I might be able to move some of it out of the way. I tapped rhythmically, 
sweat pouring down the collar of my shirt as I tried to make up something that moved the whole thing as far away from the old man's house as possible. Tapping cut the rock in tiny little shards that brushed away around the pipe. That sound resonated for a while, echoing to mix with Daryl's breathing and the occasional shift of my boots on the rock. And then I wiped my brow, and in the quiet, heard a chirp from the pipe. It was a smoke detector. Distant, to be sure, but unmistakable. It was the sound of a smoke detector starved for a new battery. What time is it? I asked, taking up the flashlight and shining it at Daryl. He looked down at his wrist. It's, it's 10.30. Come with me. Harold Wilcox didn't answer his door when we rang the bell, and we only rang it once before I opened it up and walked inside. The smoke detector was still there chirping. The utility closet was completely empty, save for a broom and a mop and a bucket. We opened the door to the crawl space and dropped down. It was the same. The pipes had been shredded, leaving huge crescents littering the floor. And there was a pipe in the ground, bone white, no writing. And I didn't dig around it, but I'll bet the pipe went straight through the soil, down through a layer of caliche, and wherever it went from there, we didn't know. So this is happening in other houses, Daryl said. That's a relief. Harold Wilcox is gone, I said. I think he went down the drain. When we went upstairs, I showed him the bathroom where Wilcox's mortal form had given up on materializing. Looking through the hatch in the side of the bathtub monolith, we saw the walker. Why don't you suppose they took that thing? Daryl asked. He was pointing at the walker eyebrows bunched at the center of his face, and he'd said, they. I guess it wouldn't fit, I said. Daryl's eyes were on the drain now, staring down into it silently, listening. But we heard nothing in that moment, except for the chirping of the smoke detector. Hey, he said as we watched the dark of the drain. I have a friend a few blocks down named Rebecca, a co-worker. I almost said out loud, hopefully, but I didn't. I let that stay unsaid until I was outside the driver's side door of my truck. And even then, it was under my breath. Hopefully she's still there. Hopefully this thing isn't happening all over the neighborhood. The ride over suffered from long gaps in conversation. Everything we said was hesitant, fit to sound insane if it wasn't. We didn't want to make sense of it, knowing whoever figured it out would have to give an explanation far enough from reason to contain the bare facts. If it had been a longer trip, I'll bet we would have talked about the weather. But then Daryl pointed to a neat-looking house with a carpeted yard and yellow beaming from the windows. That's her, he said, and I pulled into the driveway. He left the truck and broke into a run to the front door, but I stayed behind. Assuming everything was okay, 
I didn't want to be there with him as he explained himself to his lady friend. Me being there might have made her nervous at this hour, and I didn't want that. Better to let him motion for me to come over after he talked to her, or else tell me to leave. After a moment, the door opened and a confused but pretty woman nodded at the truck and motioned me toward her. Daryl says there's a mold problem in the pipes, she said when I reached them. I nodded, shaking her hand respectfully and looking at the ground by her slippers. Mold? Yeah, it's uh, eaten the glue that holds the pipes together. Well, she said, eyes surprisingly forgiving for the strange house call. You know what they say about stitches in time. One's worth ten, I said. The inside of her house was eerily similar to the others, and by this point it was starting to get disorienting. I counted nine books in German about the Prague Anabaptist Revolt, two about real estate, and eleven on coping with grief. No other books, mostly seedy jewel cases on the other shelves, mostly spoken audio. Mitch Hedberg, George Carlin, the Nixon tapes. The utility room is that way she said, pointing in the direction I was walking. Thank you, ma'am. There was a lot in the utility closet, including a shovel, which I took with me when I went down. Once under the house, I can't describe the relief I felt when I saw the pipes running alongside the floor made of PVC with the factory writing on them. Nothing in the ground that wasn't supposed to be there. No ivory column. This house was clean. I chucked the shovel on the ground, not caring to bring it back up with me. I was taking the rest of the night off. This was enough work for one day. It's good, I said when I saw Daryl in the hallway. Good? Hey, he said, leaning in. I'm probably gonna be here tonight. I know it's been a long day for you, and you probably want to get home as soon as possible, but... I wanted to say thank you for all your help. Sure, I said. His hand was out, grabbing my shoulder and locking onto it. Now that we're good, it's been a while since I've brushed my teeth. So if you're not here when I get out, I just want you to know I'll be paying you a big commission for all this. I don't even know how you'd rate hours of looking at something like this, but we'll figure it all out. We'll figure it out, I replied. He walked into the bathroom. In the living room, Rebecca had put on earrings, and I noticed her dropping a CD in the player. She had put on fresh mascara since we arrived, streaking it out the corners of her eyes, making it look somehow exotic. The music was light and gentle, the kind for lovers. I don't know if Rebecca and Daryl were lovers or not, but I do know she was drinking tea and smiling sublimely when I asked her if she'd heard any Billie Holiday lately. Sure, she said. I've listened to it before. Mostly when someone wants to complain about something. And this morning, she was interrupted. The scream was short, cut off almost before it had begun. It was like Daryl's voice, but only almost. It had been changed somehow, stretched thin, and followed by a sound like fabric flapping in a sudden wind, and a gentle tearing sound 
like that fabric had been pulled apart. Instantly, not knowing what I was even doing, I was at the bathroom door knocking. Of course it was locked. There was no response inside. What is it? Rebecca asked. I kicked the door, splintering the wood around the door jamb into a shower of cheap cedar toothpicks. There was a black square tub, a toilet, and a sink. The sink. I stopped when I saw it. A pair of boots were sitting flipped over with the toes poking over the edge of it. The water was on, soaking the heels. There was no blood. Where's Daryl? She asked, no small amount of fear in her voice. Where did he go? I was in the hallway already, running toward the utility closet and the hatch that would take me under the house. I didn't duck walk this time when I saw the pipe leading straight down from the first junction where none had been a moment before. I kicked my legs, dancing as much as crawling as I felt my hands clasp around the rough, gritty wood of the shovel I had left there. Crawling madly in the ambient light from the closet upstairs, I closed in on the pipe. I wanted to say something to myself, shout angrily at the damn thing, but I didn't know enough to even call it a bad name. The bastard was fast, much faster than I thought possible. I fell on one hand and swung the shovel wide, letting the cleft in the blade clip the pipe and crack it open like bone. It shook, wriggling with excitement as I slammed the blade against it. Something was in there, drawing down. I swung again this time calling out with exertion as every muscle in me bunched and twisted. The second swing did it. A crack shot through the pipe, spilling out a red that oozed down the side and clumped like ruddy marmalade. The ooze wasn't just dripping, though. It was spitting, like something inside was rushing past it. Something very solid and very complicated to look at. A worm of briars. That's the thought that went through my head when I cracked it again and saw the bone white of the pipe split into a wider seam. It was furious, thrilled with the motion of escape. It was spinning the sharp parts of itself down the drain to propel it fast like a centipede. And it clacked little hairs that spun around the open wound in the pipe and reached and snagged at the air. This was our drain monster, or else some part of it. And also, this was Daryl. His hair, his teeth, and his bathrobe. I could see them all blending together and tumbling down the drain with this thing. Through that keyhole, I saw it all, or else thought I did. But it was over in an instant, and as it disappeared down the drain... I heard the gurgle croak as air escaped up behind it, chugging away at the monster and Daryl's liquefied remains. Gone. Nothing left behind. Not even a song. Water bled from the pipe now, crystal clear from the faucet running in the bathroom. Upstairs and outside I found Rebecca in her car with the windows rolled up and her engine on. She was on her phone talking, eyes watching me as I walked out with the shovel in hand and dirty all over. I dropped it, realizing that I didn't look right, and I walked over, 
not knowing what else to do, and I knocked on her window with the knuckle of one finger. It lowered just a little, that window. Just a crack. Just enough for me to hear her ask, What the hell happened to Daryl? He... I thought for a second. Nope, that wasn't going to end well, telling her what really happened. But then I couldn't lie either. I nodded to her. What do you think happened? He left, she said. Disappeared, right? Climbed out a window and ran off without his shoes. He hasn't been at work these past couple days. Is, is he feeling all right? She had forgot to mention that there was no window in the bathroom of these houses. Nowhere to go except through the door that he had locked from the inside. And then there were the boots he'd left in the sink. All brand new and holding nothing in them. No blood even. It was as tidy a crime scene as ever existed. Inside my truck, I stared at the dash, hating the idea of leaving as much as staying. It was Rebecca yelling that snapped me out of the trance I was in. Just level with me. Is there something wrong with the pipes? Like what? I asked. Anything, she said. Anything at all. Yeah? I said after a bit. Yeah, there's a whole lot wrong. What do I need? What do I need to fix this problem? The automatic part of me was trying to answer the question, while the rest just sat restlessly, fingernails pulling up the stitching from the steering wheel. Just lie. Tell her to use drain lightning or bleach and pour the whole damn bottle down the drain. Tell her she needs a new drain trap. A drain trap. Her phone was ringing. Yeah, it was that Billy Holiday song, all right. Things are looking up. She answered it while I sat there watching her. The thing might have heard her phone ring at some point and remembered the sound. But then I could have heard the song in a million other places. It was hard to tell just how far-reaching this problem was. We need something to take care of it. Grab it and stop it forever. And if there were more, something to take those and grab them too. A new kind of drain trap. Something that stopped what was coming up or else killed it. A picture was forming in my mind. It wasn't a schematic yet. It was a TV commercial. Something to play during the late night news broadcasts once this thing went public. I was in on the ground floor already. All my life living in the wake of brilliant inventions. Just not clever enough to make my first million. But not this time. Nobody was going to beat me to this one. I told the lady to move to a different neighborhood, and I went home. And I stayed up that night, listening to Billie Holiday, and planning how to spend my millions. I couldn't go public just yet. I had to wait a couple weeks. Maybe a month. Maybe two. It wasn't a problem people knew about yet. I had to wait for it. Camp out near some patent office and keep an eye on missing person reports. Once they figured out what was happening, my drain traps were going to sell. And sell hot. 
Meanwhile, I could tell it a hundred ways. But shit pipes need working. That was Chris Caps's Singing in the Drain as read by Drew Sebastini. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies. And Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada with his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. As always, thank you, Drew. Our third and final story for the night comes from a new face here at Tales to Terrify. Lane Kareska has an MFA from Southern Illinois University. His work has previously been published in Berkeley Fiction Review, Sheepshead Review, Flashquake, and elsewhere. His novella, North Dark, was recently published by Siren's Call Publications. He reviews classic comic books at we'vegotsomeissues.wordpress.com. Link will be in the show notes. Tonight's story was previously published at Sheepshead Review. Let's give a listen to Lane Kareska's The Hunters. The dog was an Aussie, clean coat of black, muzzle of white. Charlie, the family had named it on adoption day. Once a tuft of dirty cotton, the animal was now some 60 pounds of rigid muscle, a fact the Bower boys often mentioned to their friends at school when dogs and ferocity was the topic. Put him inside, Travis Troy told his kid brother. He hates that, Ben said. I know it, but we can't have him out here barking like that. Neighbors will think we're getting murdered. Ben chased after the dog and hooked a small hand inside his grubby collar. Come on, bud. He walked the dog across the gravel lot to their uncle's cream-colored trailer home. Ben ushered the animal inside and shut the door behind him. That ain't gonna stop him, Ben said. The dog stood in the dirty window. Heckles raised, he barked mindlessly out at the woods beyond the trailer park. What's he barking at? Ben asked. Travis Troy shrugged. Deer out there, maybe? Elk? Ben was the youngest bower at ten years old. Travis Troy was the authority by another four. They were to have had a baby sister once, but Lillian arrived stillborn. Mother and father died together soon after in an auto accident not three blocks from the house. That was a few summers ago. Since then, they'd lived with Uncle Earl. When the census man came by, he let the Bowers know that they were the only household in Egypt, Georgia, to be populated entirely by men. That little detail struck Ben. Should he be proud of that? Ashamed? Damn summer heat, Travis Troy said, cracking open a can of Budweiser. Get that beer out of your hand. Earl will kill you. You hush up and I'll give you a sip. Travis Troy had long, dark hair to go with the long muscles in his arms and neck. Ben admired that. Ben was a short, fat kid, and he put out like the weight didn't bother him, but secretly he was crazy to be sleek and strong like Travis Troy. At night sometimes, in their bunk beds, Travis Troy spoke great and mysterious promises to Ben. 
Travis Troy said that all Ben's baby fat would fall off when his balls dropped. Said that's how it worked with Bauer men. Top heavy at the front end of life, but went out rail thin, furious and coughing, like Grandpa. It was ten in the morning, and Uncle Earl didn't get off work at the vitamin factory till six. They had the whole summer day to themselves. Travis Troy drained much of the beer can and handed it to his brother. You didn't leave nothing in it, Ben said. I left enough for you. Drink up, tough guy. Ben tilted the can and drank. The cold beer tasted of copper and snow. His eyes teared up a little, and his chest felt as if it had just been inflated with a bike pump. Hey, you pussies! Somebody shouted from behind the hedge. Ben panicked and bobbled the can. When it hit the gravel, Ben already stood behind Travis Troy. Aw, shut up, Knuckle, Travis Troy said. Knuckle, a ninth grader for the second time, stood tall and shaggy and shirtless in the sunlight. A nub of a cigarette burned on his lips. A bow and quiver hung strapped across his pale chest. Like a redneck Tarzan, Ben thought. Don't leave that cigarette butt around the trailer, Travis Troy warned. Cool your jets. Knuckle sidestepped through the bushes, raking his bow across the limbs. Knuckle and Travis Troy casually pounded their fists. Knuckle did not offer the gesture to Ben. What's wrong with your dog? Knuckle asked. Nothing, Travis Troy said. What's with the bow? I bought it. You stole it, Ben guessed. Knuckle looked at Travis Troy. You think your brother will fit in the trash compactor? Travis Troy ignored him. How many airs you got? Five. My old man will notice if any are missing, so we got to account for all of them. Let me shoot it, Ben said. I ain't even going to let you look at it. Turn your head, Knuckle said. Want a beer, Travis Troy asked Knuckle. They left Charlie barking in the trailer and climbed down the cement development wall toward the river. Three boys and a bow, hunters. They tramped down into the cool bracken under the shade of yew trees at full bloom. The air hovered cold there, and the river babbled out beyond. I'm a shoot a fish, Knuckle said. No, you ain't, Travis Troy said. Why not? Cause it ain't that easy, dingus. Water causes refraction of the light. Makes it look like something's there when the fish is really half a foot to the left. Refraction, Ben thought. That was a ten-dollar word. Travis Troy had a lot of those. Keep up, Ben, Travis Troy said. They hiked on for another twenty minutes. Then Knuckle raised his hand. Stop, he said. Why, Travis Troy asked. I want to shoot your brother. Knuckle unslung the bow from his shoulder and pulled a long aluminum arrow from the quiver. Don't joke like that, Travis Troy said. Who's joking? You ever heard of William Tell? You don't have any idea who William Tell is, Travis Troy said. Ben, go stand your fat ass against that tree, Knuckle said. Ben's heart kicked up a little bit and began to buck in his chest. He knew Knuckle was a tricker, but he also had an authentic streak of crazy running through him. Whole family did. Ask anyone in town. Knuckle was special trouble. Knuckle fit an arrow in the string and pulled back. He aimed it at the dirt, but he made full white eye contact with Ben. Ben looked to his brother. Don't listen to him, Ben. Knuckle, I swear you hush up. I'll shoot you too if I won't. A deep croak burbled from the woods, some kind of rough-bodied groan, but the sound stretched out like an insect's long and tedious click. Hell was that? Knuckle asked. Sounded like a cow, Ben said. Knowing as he spoke how dumb that made him sound. A cow, Knuckle said. Come on, Travis Troy led the way. They skulked towards the noise. Leaves and bramble crunched beneath their sneakers. Travis Troy stopped them and they listened. Nothing. Just the lick speak of the river. 
It sounded again, this time like a screen door peeling open. The sound rose and fell, rose again, and fell again. It was right before them. Travis pinned his back to a tree. Ben and Knuckle did the same. Ben waited. Oh, Travis Troy whispered. Oh, my. Ben peered around the tree. Travis Troy stared straight ahead into the woods. Travis Troy, what are you looking? Ben's eyes fell upon it. Not twenty feet away, it crouched in the bramble. Ben had seen praying mantises before, but this was not that. It wasn't a cricket, either. It had features of both, maybe, but never, never had he seen an insect this size. It trembled in the dirt and leaves, the size of a child. Not much smaller than himself, Ben guessed. It must have been injured for it to make no move, even as it watched the boys. Its antennas stood grossly long, six feet easy. Swaying and twitching, their hairy pads grazed across the forest floor. Eyes agog, shining black as tar, so large as though swollen with terror. Brisket, full and round, all armored in dull gray plates like tree bark. Six legs cocked and folded around the fat and fluted body. A set of big, sail-like wings folded across its back. Their surfaces rippled and glassy. The long boat of the abdomen spread back and ended in a long, ropey tail, coiled like a scorpion's. Ben's throat closed. The insect croaked again, shrill and obscenely. It looked at Ben and slowly lowered its triangular jaw. It screamed. The scream lasted for full seconds. Stop screaming, Ben thought. Please, stop. Why won't it move? Knuckles stepped back. Travis Troy shook his head slowly. I think it's hurt. Is that a cricket? Knuckle asked. Crickets don't have long heads like that, Ben whispered. The antenna are similar, but that tail... That thing must weigh 50 pounds. Who ever heard of a 50-pound insect? Knuckle asked. Shh, Travis Troy said. Things terrified. Shit, I'm terrified, Knuckle said. Travis Troy turned to Ben. Go home, he said. Call Uncle Earl at work. Knuckle loosed an arrow on the creature and the bolt sank halfway into its belly. The creature cranked its great head up and bellowed again into the trees, into the sky. Ben slapped his palms over his ears. Anything for it to stop. The thing cast its head side to side, terrible wet mouth agape, openly screaming its grinding cords. The arrow shook and waved in its thorax. The insect looked at the boys and bleated, honked at them fiercely. It made no move save to pump its face in their direction, shrieking again and again at its murderers. Ben turned away. He nearly ran, but he thought of his brother. Would he follow? Would Travis Troy call him a coward? The sound finally died, and Ben hugged his chest. He glanced back towards his brother and tried not to look at the creature. Travis Troy pushed Knuckle to the ground. The bow fell from Knuckle's hands. What'd you do that for, you psychopath? Travis Troy hollered. Thing's a monster, Knuckle said. I'm putting it out of its misery. Sides, we'll be famous. Get our picture in the news. Travis Troy shook his head and looked back at the bug. The thing seemed to move slower now. Colorless fluid, thick as olive oil, pushed from its wound. The insect dragged its face across the ground. Leaves caught on its eyes. See, I killed it, Knuckle said. Travis Troy looked at Ben. Let's get out of here, he said. Knuckle, go get your arrow if you want it. I ain't going near that thing, Knuckle said, walking away from the monster. Travis Troy took up the bow and quiver, saying only, You ain't carrying this. You just lost the privilege. They walked and argued on their way back toward the house. Knuckle carried on about fame while Travis Troy told him he was an a-hole. 
Ben said not a word. Best to let these bigger kids have it out amongst themselves. Travis Troy had it under control anyway. You know what that was? Knuckle asked to no one. It was a locust. God sent them before to devour the earth, and here they are again. Ben kept his head down and walked on until he bumped into Travis Troy. What'd you stop for, he asked. They'd all stopped. There were four of them, all crouched and poised at the boys, like lion cubs ready to pounce. Their long forelegs bent beneath them in the dirt. Travis Troy put a flat hand on his brother's belly. The locusts twitched their heads back and forth like they couldn't control it. Severe shivers rattled the locust spines. Their brittle exoskeletons trembled with anticipation. Their bulbous black eyes shook. Simultaneously, the insects stood up on their spindly hind legs. They chittered as if in discussion. Their shining jaws looked as long and sharp as traps. Go, Travis Troy said. Ben thought Travis Troy had lost his mind and was speaking to the bugs, as if they were pets, dogs. Go. Then Travis Troy gave a hard push on Ben's belly and Ben realized he was speaking to him. Travis shouted, Go! Ben twisted away and ran from the trees, toward the fields of standing yellow cane bordering the river. Ben raised his hands and blocked his face with his forearms. Panicked, he plunged into the tall stalks. He ran and pushed forward. Tears streaked down his red face. He coughed and choked and forgot how to breathe, his mouth filled with cotton weed. Distantly, someone shouted his name. His brother shouted his name. Ben turned and was mauled by a locust. Its heavy arms swatted at him, pulled him to the ground. Ben shrieked and cried, and his brother repeated his name into his face. Ben! 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 Ben opened his eyes. It was Travis Troy. His brother had found him and saved him. Travis Troy pinned him to the ground, knees on his chest. Be quiet, Ben. Hush. Ben quit sobbing and looked into his brother's face. Where's Knuckle? Ben sniffed. I don't know, Travis Troy whispered. Let's get home. Travis Troy rolled off Ben and stood. Ben hauled himself up and held on to his brother's hand. Travis! Knuckle screamed from somewhere. Travis! It sounded as if Knuckle was bawling. His voice gurgled and pleaded. Travis! They're stinging me! Travis! There! The voice shut off. Ben opened his eyes. A figure stepped through the cane toward them. It was Knuckle. He wore a locust on his back. It clung there between his shoulder blades, green forelegs scissoring tightly around Knuckles' face. The tail wrapped around Knuckles' throat. Some kind of stinger implanted itself deep and clean into the skin of his throat. Knuckles' face swelled as he walked. Before Ben's eyes, Knuckle became unrecognizable, became a monster himself. The swelling closed Knuckles' eyes and mouth. His cheeks puffed out to the point that they overcame and absorbed his nose. It looked like his own head was swallowing his face. His skull swelled to the size of a basketball and bigger. The pop of bones sounded like tree limbs snapping. Knuckles' arm waved as he stumbled about like a toddler. The hands, Ben noticed, were each swollen to the size of dinner plates. Fingers could not be distinguished. Knuckle twisted and fell. He lay still and disfigured in the cane. The locust rattled and uncoiled its tail. They killed him. I have now seen someone be killed, Ben thought. Travis Troy and Ben sprinted together through the cane. Travis Troy hauled Ben along. They stumbled into the river, the cold water suddenly up to Ben's chest. Travis Troy pushed him forward, commanding him to swim. Ben quit thinking. He committed himself to the river and to the swiftness of the current. He let it take him. All he could try to do was keep his head above water. River water filled his ears, clogged his senses. It filled his shoes and tried to pull him under like weights. He flailed, and the river took him. His heartbeat shot up into his head. The blood pounded in his temples like hammer strokes. This was panic. This was shock. 
his head filled with pressure and with pain. He tried to breathe but sucked in only another lungful of cold water. Something deep inside his brain knew what was happening. He realized he was only a moment from blacking out and disappearing forever. No oxygen, no brain, no life, no questions. Ben flapped his arms a final time and pushed his face from the water and inhaled as deep as he could. This was his final moment. He didn't understand how it had happened so quickly. Why him? Why this day? He fell back into the water, choking, dying. The river consumed him and sucked him to the bottom. A moment passed and Ben thought, Good. He knew that this was right. This was as it should be. It was right for Knuckle to die. Right for Ben to die as well. Travis Troy would survive. Travis Troy would go on. Ben accepted this and felt a kind of relief brew up in him as he drowned. Ben shut his eyes and emptied his lungs. The priest had closed out Ben's little sister's funeral by looking directly into Ben's eyes and saying, As you pray for Lillian, know that she is with God, and she prays also for you. Ben liked that. He liked the idea of a little baby sister praying directly into God's ear for Ben and Travis Troy. Hands clamped down around the hinges of Ben's jaw and jerked his head up, trying to rip his head from his shoulders. Ben opened his eyes and saw the dark swimming shade of Travis Troy wrestling him up to the surface. Travis Troy toyed him and forced him upward. Travis Troy wrapped his arms across his brother's belly and hauled him toward the sunlight. Travis Troy kicked as though in a frenzy. They broke the surface screaming. Together they pushed toward the far side. They scrabbled and panted in the clay. Ben's vision tuned in and out. He vomited water into the mud. They lay on their backs, mouths open to God. Just two brothers on a river bank. Ben had never wanted more to fall asleep. Come on, Travis Troy said, rolling onto his stomach. He pushed himself to his feet. His hand sank to the wrist in the mud. The locusts clicked again, buzzing from somewhere, everywhere. The sound filled the woods. Where are they? Ben asked. They looked back across the river at their homeland, the woods of West Georgia. Together, hundreds of locusts leapt up into the air above the cane. A tide darkened the sky. Ben could not guess their number. All the size of dogs are bigger. The buzzing shook Ben's skin and pierced his brain. Come on! Travis Troy grabbed his brother and pushed him up, and they ran into the hills. They ran through the fields, the buzzing everywhere, only increasing in volume. Don't look back! Travis Troy shouted. They ran up the undulations of green grass, Ben sopping blue jeans, throwing water and piss. They ran toward a long plain of grass and the empty interstate beyond that. The filling station stood old and abandoned a hundred yards away. Ben followed Travis Troy. The buzzing of the creatures rang out impossibly loud. They reached the gas station and Travis Troy tore open the door. Ben glanced backwards and witnessed a great current of locusts, all in size comparable to himself. They swept down from the sky like black sand pouring from the sun. Their clacking and buzzing sounded to Ben as if a power line were running through his head. A chestnut-colored yearling rolled and seized in the field, hooves aflutter. The horse battled with a trio of locusts that stabbed and pried at its back. Travis Troy shut the door. Abandoned, the interior of the filling station was stripped almost bare. The skeletal racks were empty, the counters clear. A layer of dust caked the floor. The brothers crowded in the old bathroom and bolted the door shut. The bolt fell apart in Travis Troy's hands. Ben cried into his wrists. Travis Troy leaned against the door and slid down, panting hard. At his parents' funeral, Ben waited for the priest to say that his mother and father were in heaven praying for Ben. He never said it. The priest closed it out differently, in some other way Ben could not now remember. 
Afterward, Ben gathered the courage to approach the priest and ask him. Oh, yes, the priest said. All of our family members that have passed on pray to God on our behalf, and he listens. All pray on our behalf. Ben imagined his whole line of mysterious ancestors all kneeling in heaven, all praying for Ben and his brother. Does the plea of those that were closest to you carry more weight? Is the prayer of your mother worth more than the prayer of your grandmother? Is your number of dead proportionate to how blessed you become? When Ben awoke on the bathroom floor, Travis Troy handed him the heavy porcelain lid from the toilet tank. Take this, he said. You swing it and bash him if you need to. Where are you going? Ben grabbed his brother's hands. Gonna try and find the office phone. Call Uncle Earl. Even if I can just leave a message, he can come and find us. We can't just stay here. There ain't gonna be an office phone, Ben said. Maybe there will be. Ain't you scared? Ben asked. Hell yes I am, Travis Troy said. But remember what John Wayne said. What? Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Ben burst into tears. I'm taking the bow. Travis Troy rubbed his brother's head. I'll be back real soon. Don't open this door for nothing, understand? Ben nodded. Travis Troy put his ear to the door. What do you hear? Ben sniffled. Travis Troy shook his head. Nothing. He turned the knob and pulled the door open a crack. He peered out into the emptiness of the gas station. I'll be right back. Travis Troy slid out the doorway and Ben shut it behind him. Ben applied his shaken hands to the door and held it shut. His chin trembled. He swallowed. Buck up. You're with Travis Troy. You're okay. Just count. Just count. Ben began slowly. One. Two. He glanced back to the dark bathroom for something with which to bar the door. There was nothing. Filthy toilet, filthy floor, old cigarettes and a plastic lighter lay in the dry sink. He counted. When he made it to 150, something banged heavily outside the door, as if something large crashed on the floor. Another crash. Something pounded on the door. Ben screamed aloud. Ben! Open it up! Travis Troy pushed on the door. Ben stepped back and the door swung open. Travis Troy fell in and turned and slammed the door behind him. Travis Troy shook and trembled. Instantly, Ben knew he wasn't right. What happened? Ben took to shaking as well. Dark red blood ran out of Travis Troy's nose and ears in straight lines. He had neither the bow nor the quiver. Travis Troy stared at his hands. His face began to purple. Terror rose in his eyes. His throat swelled as if it were inflating. He screamed. He looked at Ben and screamed. In the gas station bathroom, the brothers panicked together. They both knew Travis Troy had been stung and was now going to die. Travis Troy convulsed. His chest pumped like a bellows. He looked as if he were straining his jaw. He locked his teeth and screamed as his face distorted. He tried to say his brother's name, but his tongue filled his whole mouth. Ben screamed maniacally. He clutched onto his brother and felt his brother's swelling hand grab and pull at Ben's face. The older brother howled through his dislodged jaw. The bones in his face popped audibly. Travis Troy's final moments would be grotesque and agonizing. This was not how Ben thought it would end. This was wrong. Travis Troy was no longer Travis Troy. He was a screaming deformity on the bathroom floor. Save him. Kill him. Save your brother. Give mercy. Kill your brother. Ben took up the lid of the toilet tank and swung it down against Travis Troy's skull. Travis Troy's head spun a quarter turn and slammed against the floor. A handful of teeth skittered across the tile. Travis Troy screamed louder, his eyeballs about to burst. Kill your brother. Even this, Ben could not do correctly. Ben swung the slab again and again until it shattered and Travis Troy lay on the ground. 
His massive head cracked inward. Ben fell onto his brother and clawed at his blood-soaked shirt. He struck his face against his dead brother's chest and screamed and sobbed and wanted nothing more than to be dead with him to go where he had gone. The blood and the bathroom smelled of rust. Hours passed. Ben, drenched in blood, sat against the bathroom door. He sat with his hands around his knees. His head hung forward sleepily. Pray for me. Ben shook awake. No light shone in the bathroom. The smell of thick and metallic blood filled his head. He thought of Uncle Earl. He tried to imagine being rescued, but in the fantasy that played across his mind's eye, it was not his uncle that kicked open the bathroom door to save him. It was his dog, Charlie. He imagined his great dog attacking the locusts, snapping and growling at them as he raced across the river to find his boys. If any dog could do such a thing, could brave such a hell, it would be... No, Ben could not finish the thought. Ben knew in his true heart that his simple, eager dog was still trapped in the trailer where he'd been left, barking helplessly, or dead somewhere, swollen up and broken, just like Travis Troy. Ben stood and took slow, cautious steps to the bathroom sink. He bumped into it and scraped his hand along the bowl. He rubbed the porcelain and found the old dry cigarette butts in the rusty plastic lighter. He took it up and rubbed his thumb against the wheel. He'd seen Knuckle use a lighter before. How did it work? He flicked it again and again, each time causing a stir of blue light. Finally, he flicked it and held the button. An inch of quivering flame stood from the mouth of the lighter. In the mirror, Ben looked like a wild animal. His face was covered in dirt and blood and streaked with tears. It looked like war paint. He turned and cast the light onto his brother's body. Travis Troy, helpless for the first time ever. Ben looked away. The walls were filthy and blood spattered. Graffiti was scrawled on the tiles, most of it illegible. Except for before him, at eye level, someone had scrawled the words. You go to hell, hell, hell. You go to hell, hell, hell. A sound like the buzz and snap of electricity rattled from the doorway. Something sharp and wiry brushed his cheek. Ben turned and dropped the ladder. In the last moment of light, he saw the long antenna questing through the cracked doorway. The thin door glided open. Ben scurried backward on the floor. He crab-walked over to his brother's slick and stiffening body. His hand slipped on the heavy shards of porcelain that had once been the tank lid. He backed up against the wall. The locusts buzzed and clacked before him in the dark. He could not see, only guess how many crouched before him. His hands curled around two sharp chunks of porcelain. Pray for me. Like a towel puzzle being solved, the thought slid and locked into position in his head. You were made for this. This is you. He'd never be his brother. Was never meant to. This was always his purpose, to be here at this moment with these creatures. It was as if a dam had broken within him. There is no future. That is your freedom. Ben decided. He swallowed and spat, ready to run at the monsters, ready to run after his family. Ben stood and wielded the shards like gruesome and ancient knives. You go to hell, hell, hell. That was Lane Kareska's The Hunters, as read by our own Scott Silk. 
Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. In his spare time, his interests include reading, writing, urban gardening, tattoos, cartoons, seeing how long he can let his hair grow, and not wearing pants. Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his girlfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can sometimes be found babbling about speculative fiction and his other interests on Twitter, at ScottSilk13. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Make sure to tune in next week. We'll have three more stories from you from Leslie Baum, Diane Auerbuck, and Brendan Wilhelm. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.